So as we now take up this section, we're moving on past. This is coming just on the heels of where the church, the scripture has told us how there was so much unity and graciousness and love and generosity abounding in the early church. And it had given us that tremendous example of Barnabas, as we know him, who had sold his property and given all of that money. Then it gave us the example that even though a right and generous and loving spirit prevailed among the early church, it was not perfect. You know, and this is the reality, brothers and sisters. You are never going to find a perfect church. You know, and the way, the way that it's often said is, well, you know, and it's not so gracious the way it's most commonly said. But it's usually said the reason why it's not perfect is because you're there. Or, or I'm there because we are ourselves, not a one of us, perfect. And once, uh, very recently, I was speaking with a man, young man and he was telling me about a man who had had a problem with someone in a church or a pastor in a church years ago. And so here was his solution. Stop going to church. What? Not find another church, just stop going altogether. Because of the problems. And you will meet so many people along the way who say they used to, they did, and speak of this great past commitment. And yet, um, then they'll say, but you know, this happened, and this person said this, and did this, and I didn't feel good going there anymore. And so from now I've kind of, it's like, wait a second. Something that's going wrong in all of this is we're kind of making church about us. Which we need to remember as we were considering earlier this morning in 1 Corinthians. Church is first and foremost about God. It is the church of God. It belongs to Him. It is, it is the church that was purchased with the blood of Christ. We come together not because of the worthiness of one another. Because that will often prove not so much. We come because he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our time. And he has, as our great Savior and Lord, also made us members of his body of which we are the head. He has distributed to one of his own vocation of one another, which you can't do if you're not coming together and we come together in the name of Jesus. Uh, we, saw, we saw into that. Ananias and Sapphira. Showed up with lies. Began to use even the context. Of the church. And, and think that within that. They could hide their greed. They could hide their worldliness. And, and, and their pride. And gain esteem. In the church. You know, uh, such a different perspective as we contemplate those things. And we remember as John the Baptist was there and as Jesus came onto the scene and the disciples of John the Baptist quite concerned for him and his importance and his position were telling him, oh, more are going to him to be baptized than are coming to you. And what was John's response? We know it well, don't we? He must increase and I must decrease. Decrease. It is always about the glory of God in Christ. Yet Ananias and Sapphira seem to have a different agenda in what they were doing. They were looking for their own glory. 
They were looking for their own praise. They were looking for their own appreciation. They were wanting people to think highly of them. Where we really just want people to think highly of Christ. You know, so that any of us happen to have or display any particular gift that God is pleased to use to the benefit of the others. What do we say? Well, praise God who has been pleased to use this or that for the good of his people, for their encouragement and for their benefit. It's all about him, his goodness, his grace, his glory. And Ananias and Sapphira proved to be false and quickly and immediately died. Fear came upon the whole church, but... Uh, Thankfully, this did not end the progress of the church. You know, you would think that in the minds of people, oh, wait a second, I joined this group, and then if I'm proven to, if there's something not right in me, uh oh, boom, dead. Who's ready for that? I'm not ready for that kind of judgment that someone would test and see if there's no failures, no flaws in me, but that's not what happened. These men were pursuing glory in the context of well, man and wife, pursuing glory in the context of the church while manifesting greed, manifesting pride. It was all wrong. And God wanted to teach them the importance of the purity of the church. Now we come into the next section and we begin to see miracles multiplied. Not only which this was a miracle right there before the apostles. We like generally of miracles as the dead coming to life. The miracle that just took place in the, in the book of Acts here was the living dying. And you may say to yourself momentarily, well, that's not a miracle. I could kill anybody. No, you should not, first of all. And secondly, they, nobody killed Ananias and Sapphira. God himself did it in the presence of the apostles. And I'm going to go further as we see next. No men, no apostles themselves, they did not actually heal anybody. Men don't heal. Men don't do miracles. God heals. God does miracles. God is the one who gives life and God's the one who takes it away. God's the one who can bless with abundance and God's the one who can bring into a time of, of challenges and difficulties. I want us to begin to look at how miracles are multiplied here. We're going to look at five different things, three of them described with the term miraculous. And the first thing is simply this, the miraculous exploits of the apostles. It's the first thing we're going to see here. It says this in chapter five, verse 12. Now, Many signs and wonders were regularly done. That's the way the ESV renders it, and it, it's helpful to see it that way. Many were regularly done. This is significant, isn't it? You know, again, a lot of us uh, 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 in the church today look at that and say, well, we want that, and we want those things, but Oftentimes we're saying that, and, and I understand and appreciate the desire for it, but without reading the rest of it, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. The apostles are used in the book of uh, Acts in an extraordinary way. Now we're going to see that some deacons such as Philip. And then, uh, and then some spoken of in the book of Corinthians. Later on in chapter 12 and following. Others 
other than apostles would to some extent and some degree have some gift of miracles or signs and wonders and healings. But the many and the regular, the multitude, the mass of them was distinctive among the apostles. And we're going to see that um, really as it unfolds in just a moment. But I want us to see this. They were, they were doing these miracles. They were often, it was very similar. They're gathering together in Solomon's portico. You remember it was as they were entering the temple initially back in chapter 4, that there was that, that lame man who was there, and they uh, said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And this man rose up and walked and followed them in, and the people gathered in Solomon's portico, and they began to minister to them, who has done this? And the more important thing is not ultimately that this man is walking, but that there is salvation in the name of Jesus. And that was the thing. And, and so they continued to gather in this place, Solomon's portico, an, an area right there inside the temple courts. And as they would gather, they'd continue to minister. Now, people were getting a little wary because the leadership was opposing them with increasing jealousy and increasing animosity. And so some people were hesitant to actually join them and gather together with them, but staying afar off. But regardless of men's natural hesitancy in terms of fear of other men, in regardless of men's natural limitations and weakness as far as understanding spiritual things, nothing about men's limitations ever stops God from accomplishing his purposes. And we're going to see that unfold. But as we look, first of all, I want us to see the messianic prophecies. The, the reason why we see so many, down in verse 15, it says this, there were miracles taking place, verse 15, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. And people gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick, those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. I mean, that's Quite significant, right? Everyone they brought was ultimately all healed. That is so different. I, I hate to say it, you know, if, if some hold someone in high esteem. But these various healing crusades that go on throughout the world. The reality is, is what you see on television is very different than what you see when you're there. In the television, you get, you get an edited form and you get someone coming across the stage claiming this or claiming that. Claiming that they could not speak when they arrived, but now they can speak. Claiming they could not walk when they arrived, but now they can walk. But I tell you, God granted in the op our opportunities overseas serving Him. Many of these individuals who go overseas would descend upon India. And we've had, uh, when they've come to Mumbai, I've sent the seminary students to go and observe. When we were in Delhi, uh, Jemima and I attended a number of these and went and observed. We went and stood in an area that was reserved for blind and lame people. I mean, lame people in, in, in such that, the, that their, their legs 
are, are at times not much thicker than a finger. And blind people whose eyes are completely covered over gray. You can't see anything there. And the men who gather there are telling them today God is going to be healing the blind people. And so if you want to receive from the Lord you need to give back to the Lord. Press down and flowing over and they send out buckets. And people give. Parents of lame children. Wives of blind husbands. Taking off jewelry, uh, pouring everything they have into these buckets that end up overflowing from these people's poverty and desperation. And to stand there among them. Now, I'll note this as the night goes on, there's people rolling across the, stray, the stage saying they were healed of this or that. But what's odd is it's always the people whose eyes looked exceedingly normal who recovered their sight. Whose legs looked exceptionally nimble. Who recovered their, their walking. But when you, were, when you stood there among the lame. And they would say cover your eyes. And they would declare them now you are healed in the name of Jesus. And these people would take their hands off of their eyes. And they're still gray. And covered over. And they would cover them again. And uncover them. And do it three, four times. And then tears flowing from their eyes. But still no sight. Parents taking braces off the legs of children. And lifting them and letting them go. And the poor child crumpling to the ground in pain. And then picking them up and trying it again and again and again. And all those that, that in those environments. I'm not saying that healing doesn't take place today. But much that goes on in the name of healing is not on the last night of it, I remember looking around the whole section of sick people. This is well after the, the lead speaker has, has gone behind the stage and gotten into the, the stretch Mercedes and gone over to the five-star hotel. Looked at all of these impoverished people sitting there crying, knowing it was the last night and that they hadn't received a healing. And just in utter desperation and misery and thinking, they're being told, thinking, we were told that Christ could heal us. And he did not. When God is at work and what was taking place here, it was not a game. It was not a show. It was a service. And it, it had, a, it had an, an extraordinary purpose because it really connected. You remember, really coming forward. If you look at the history of the prophets, some extraordinary things were done through the prophets. But then came Christ. What was being done through Christ. Unheard of. This man was blind from birth. And now he's 40. This does not happen. This person's been lame all of their life. This, this woman has had this, this blood issue. For years and years and years. And seen every doctor. And spent countless money. Hopeless. And yet with immediacy. And completeness healed. And that's no surprise because Isaiah in order that we would know who the Christ would be. Says these are those things that will distinguish him from all those who have gone before him. From the false claimers. It says this in Isaiah 29, 18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom the darkness of the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One. That's why in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus and says, 
are you the one that we're waiting for or there is there another to come because Jesus was doing a very similar ministry to John he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing and having people baptized in the name of the Lord but people were expecting something far more political far more worldly based in their Messiah remember when he was preaching the kingdom, when he met with Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, the Old Testament, they thought that all of the promises and prophecies were for a kingdom. And that when the Messiah came, he was going to lift up Israel, lead them to freedom and, and tremendous change. But one of the things that would distinguish him is that the deaf would hear and the blind would see. And Jesus responds in that way. He says, when they say, should we look for another? It says, in that hour, he healed many people. So he didn't initially answer them. Kind of said, have a look. <laughs> in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. I love, I love the way that that is phrased here in Luke 7, 21. On many who were blind, he bestowed sight. There wasn't a recovery of sight. They didn't gain sight. He gave them sight. It's just a beautiful terminology. And it goes on to say, and he answered them, go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to him, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So initially, a tremendous amount of miraculous power, power as had never been seen before, was done by Christ, because, not because that would save many. Gospel of John tells us that though he did many miracles in that place, still they did not believe in him. Seeing miracles does not bring saving faith. The grace of God brings saving faith. But these miracles testified, this is the promised Messiah. This is the one. And much like those messianic prophecies, we have the same thing with regard to the miraculous prophets. Everybody had heard and, and many had seen that this Messiah has been crucified. That he had died. Remember even on the road to Emmaus. Those disciples that were going away. They said. We had hoped that he was the one. We thought. We had hoped. But alas they crucified him. And what does Jesus say? You slow of heart to believe all that is spoken of by the prophets. You've missed it. He did not fail. He has failed. Fully accomplished the victory of all that was purposed of God. Because he has risen. And they had even heard that the women had testified that he had risen. But they knew it was so impossible that they left. Even before he began appearing. And that's the reality. People think. He, he rose from the dead. That's one of the goals of the enemy and the enemies of truth. Is they can't deny the historical Jesus. This is impossible. 
He's attested, even in the writings outside of the scriptures, of men who weren't followers of him. They cannot deny the historicity, the historic reality of Jesus. So what they have to deny is what? They have to deny that he rose from the dead. Because that is impossible. Well, he didn't appear to all. He appeared to the 12, the apostles, most regularly and most repeatedly. But once he did appear to more than 500 at once so that people would know that they're not false. But beyond that, so that people would know that these men were authoritative, authentic representatives of Christ. They were granted in establishing that foundation of the church. To carry out the very same signs that he himself was carrying out. In Acts chapter 4, it had said this. They had prayed this as they had come under their first threats. They had prayed that God would give them in Acts 4.29. Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They understood their responsibility was to continue to speak the word with boldness. And then verse 30 says, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So did they think they were miracle workers or that God works miracles? And they were they were certainly ready to be used. And I love. The terminology that's used there in, in chapter 5 verse 12 where it says uh, many signs and wonders were being done uh, among the people by the hands of the apostles. It's an interesting phrase by the hands of the apostles. For us we would have thought it would have been good enough to simply say done by the apostles. But that would not have been accurate because the apostles themselves were not doing miracles. They were merely the vessel, the instrument through which God was doing these things. The same kind of thing as, as the, it speaks of God bringing judgments on certain nations in the Old Testament. And it will say that he brought judgment on this nation by the hand of the king of Assyria. It's like, okay. So it's God. Who's actually working these things out. In Acts chapter 3 verse 12. When they had healed that, that crippled man. In, uh, it said this. Men of Israel. Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? We didn't do this. This was done by God. This was done down in verse 15. The, uh, you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, this man has been made strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus Christ has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Again, what we begin to see is why were there being so many, and we do see in the early part of Acts such an emphasis on the apostles. Why were they doing such a multitude of miracles? Reason why? Because it would authenticate their authority as well as their witness. They claim, the people were claiming that Christ died. The Christ who had himself done all of these miracles and raised the dead. Now, what they're basically saying is, 
if Christ was dead, then how are these miracles still being done through his name and by faith in him? These are evidences that Christ is risen, just as he says. The very same works that he was doing are the very same works that he is still doing now through us. Now, this should not be a surprise because they're in Acts chapter 2, verse 20. I mean, Ephesians 2, 20. It tells us this of the church, that it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the cornerstone of which is Jesus Christ. Now, I want... I know a lot of people don't enjoy grammar and all those kinds of fanciful things, but you're going to get a little bit of it. Um, now, in the English language, when we word things like this, um, the apostles and prophets, um, that can usually sound like two different groups. Uh, I'm going to oversimplify so that if you're thoroughly versed in, in, in certain Greek exceptions, you could take exception with me, but then uh, we would get less simplified and we could, we could knock it out. But I'm going to simplify it for all of us who are here. And that is, ge generally speaking, there are many times where the scriptures use the word the in the Greek where it never appears in our English because it, that we don't use the definite article in that way. And so we remove it. And oftentimes, if it's intended to speak of two different groups, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, uh, there will be a, a, an article in front of each one. This one is the apostles and prophets. There's no repeat of the article, and both are in the, in the same case. They're both in the genitive plural, which means they're speaking of the same individuals. So if I was to Englify this, which may not even be an English word, so I apologize. If I was to Englify this, it would, we, we would turn one of those probably into a descriptive. It would be the prophetic apostles, or it would be the apostolic prophets. Or even more simply, it would be the apostles who are also prophets. They served as the foundation of the church. And so what, what you have here, now there's going to be other miracles along the way. But the way that I, I like to think of it is, look, when you lay the foundation, particularly in, in ancient construction, and, and even more so in still overseas construction, when you lay the foundation, you're laying a lot of cement. Now, there may be other cement in, and mortar in between bricks as you go up. So there may still be healings and signs and, and things. But the foundation has far more cement than anything else. Because it lays that firm foundation. And th so we see the same thing in the scriptures. And this is one of the challenges people often say. How come we don't see today... People do miracles in the same way that the apostles did. I mean, why does a guy go and rent a, a stadium, put on a show, make a boatload of dough? When, why doesn't he just travel to all these countries and go to the major hospitals? Work his way through the hospitals and get it done. Why is he not doing that? Well, 
because there's no show. <laughs> you know, there's no stage in the hospital. It doesn't have that same effect. And worse than that, he'd probably go into one room, and when he leaves, that person still got the same sickness he had when he walked in there. And room after room after room, people remain the same. It's an astounding thing while, why when challenged, not a one of these little fellas is willing to, to make a hospital journey and work their way through hospital rooms. Why not? Well, uh, that, that seems, well, that doesn't seem right, you know. Uh, were, were they putting on shows? No, people were gathering on the sides of the streets. And they were healing at, even as they passed by. There was no show that was going on. And this was to establish that foundation, which is why it says this in Hebrews 2. Verse 3 and 4, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first declared by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Now, just so we note this, this is how it's going. First declared by the Lord. Christ himself more fully unpacked the gospel of the kingdom that was founded in his work in a way that even John did not yet understand. First declared by the Lord. And then who? By those of us who heard. Who are those who heard? Those apostles. Those men who traveled with him. Those men who were taught by him. Verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to whom he will. This is how it was authenticated. This is how it was attested. The Lord declared it. And he had all those messianic prophecies that he would be this extraordinary miracle worker. Then those of us who had heard from them, from him, we also went forward as witnesses and God himself, together with our verbal witness, God bore witness to the authenticity of the gospel of the risen Lord, we declare, by bringing all these signs and wonders through our hands. Again, God bore witness because he did it. How many times do people, does the attention go to an individual who supposedly does this or that. So we've seen the miraculous exploits of the apostles. Secondly, I want us to look at this. The miraculous expansion through addition. It says this in verse 13. None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. So there was a, 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 lar a sense in which people were very hesitant Remember, there was jealousy, there was animosity, uh, th there were people who were hesitant. But regardless of what might seem to be an impediment within man, within his thoughts, within his feelings, within his understandings, within his emotion, when God decides he's going to add to the church, when God decides he's going to save the lost, when he's going to grant spiritually si spiritual sight to the spiritual blind, to grant that those who can hear with faith can now hear those who were dead in their trespasses and sin are made alive who can stop him that's why i love what it says in verse 14 it says 
And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. I tell you this, brothers and sisters. I would love to see that. I'd love to look around and that, that be the case in our day and age. Now, it's not surprising that that was the case then and there. Because Jesus had told them with regard to that region... That the fields were white for harvest. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers into the field. I don't know. Maybe we're not living in a season of harvest. Maybe we're, li we're living in a season of planting. Maybe we're living in a season of watering. I do not know. Christ knows those things. He's the Lord of the church. We simply do what he's called us to do. And he will accomplish all things in his time. But we know this. Whether it's to plant the seed. Whether it's to pour the water. It is the Lord himself who provides the increase. Remember Paul says to the church at Corinth. that He who plants. Neither he who plants or he who waters. Is anything. Which is exceedingly humbling I mean, it's basically like telling the most faithful and the most articulate ministers of the gospel hey remember this you're nothing what 3,000 people were saved through my sermon on the day of Pentecost yes and you remain nothing what because you didn't save them you didn't change them you didn't convince them. The grace of God did. Wow. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But God provides the growth. Here again. What's, what you might notice in the language. It's not as clear in English. It says. And more than ever. Multitudes were added. Added. The, the phrase were added is in the passive. Which means they were not adding themselves. Who's adding to the church? God is. I mean this language is laced all through the scripture. And it's just amazing how often we missed it. And if someone was to write this today. We would, we would change it all around. And we would say more than ever multitudes join the church. Right? Wouldn't we? And, and join. Where's the emphasis in that word? They did it. But when the scripture says more than ever, multitudes were added, where's the emphasis? God added. And it's not just there. Look with me in Acts 11 verse 24. Speaking of the ministry of Barnabas, when he first comes down to Antioch, it says, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people... Again, the phrase, were added to the Lord. Passive. Many of us are also uh, aware of, ah, well, who's doing the adding? You're saying God, but it doesn't say that. Thanks for asking. Go with me to chapter 2, verse 47. In those early days of the church post-Pentecost, it says they were praising God and having favor with all the people. Acts 2.47, and the Lord 
added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Once again, being saved in the passive. Someone's doing, someone's saving them. Someone's adding them to the church. Who's that someone? You know. Thank you. Uh, I was thinking there's, there's probably an environment somewhere where if I was to say, who's that someone? There'd be a unison reply, the Lord. And I'd say, amen. And I'll pretend it happened as well. Further, Acts 13 says this. When now the gospel is going beyond the bounds of the Jewish community. Even it's gone into the Gentile community. And it's been, been going out even with the ministry of Bar Paul and Barnabas. And it says this. Verse 48 of Acts 13. When the Gentiles heard this. That the gospel is also for them. That they also may be saved through Christ. It says what? They began rejoicing and glorifying the Lord. And as many as were appointed for salvation believed. The old King James there uses this word. As many as were ordained for salvation believed. God is getting it done. We might go so far as to say, and we're not going too far because we're kind of quoting scripture. Jesus will build his church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The efforts of the enemy will pro not prevail against it. The rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers of this air. There is nothing that will prevail against the power of God in Christ building his church. Amen? Yes. And so that is a, such a remarkable blessing. Now the third thing that we see in this passage is a little less... Miraculous, but it leads to a miracle, so it's pretty. And that I, the third thing in this passage we see is what I call the malevolent incarceration by the adversaries. It says in verse 17, the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that's the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Ooh. -hoo. Now, Remember, this is not unique to them. The, these men also have said concerning Jesus Christ. Um, in verse uh, Acts 4.26. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. Jesus had reminded, had taught them in advance these things in John 15.20. He said, remember the words I say to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they hated me, they will hate you. Did they persecute him? Did he suffer at their hands? Did they hate him? Yeah, they hated him unto death. And they killed him. And now exactly what he said would happen is happening. He even told them this in Mark 13, verse 9 and following. Be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness to them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. Further, it says in these sort of occasions. In verse 11, it says, and when they bring you to trial 
and deliver you over. When you're standing before these councils and these judges and these rulers and men in position of authority. When you're in these positions, it says to them, don't be anxious. Don't even be anxious beforehand what you are to say. Whatever, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who will speak, but the Holy Spirit. See, that was their confidence in the moment of fear where they would feel like their boldness may be crushing in because the same groups that arrested Jesus are now coming at them. The same ones who questioned Jesus are now questioning them. And so their, their human thoughts are going to run to what? We're in trouble. But by the grace of God, even as they prayed in chapter 4, God grant that we will continue to speak boldly. And they were filled with the spirit and continued to speak boldly. When they were to stand before. And they would maybe be full of fear and anxiety. And maybe seemingly tongue tied. And, and, and tempted to defend themselves. God's going to relieve the apostles from having to somehow defend themselves. And he's going to actually enable them. We're going to see as this unfolds. To never make it about themselves. <laughs> To continually make it about Christ when they do open their mouths. Now, sadly, some men have taken this same passage where God has promised these apostles. And, and when they're arrested and stand before governors as, and kings. As what God is going to give to everyone. And in particular, to preachers. I came across far too many preachers. Um, even while overseas, I'd say, brother, what are you going to be preaching on Sunday? It being Friday, you know, I don't know. Okay, uh, so you work usually work out your sermons on Saturday. Uh, no, I I don't prepare because uh, the the Bible says the Spirit will give me. So don't prepare beforehand what to say. I said, are you are you standing before judges and, and councils and rulers who are condemning you? Yeah, if, you, if you're going to do that, don't worry about what you got to say. Because you're going to go back to, to the tried and true gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that, that should be so rooted at your core. that You don't have to think about that anymore. But when it comes to delivering the message to God's people, please do a little more due diligence. Please understand the context of those passages. So they, they, uh, they arrest them. But then we see what that leads to in uh, verse 19. The miraculous exit through the angel. It says, verse 19, but through, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point a little. Because I want to yield to this text. And the author of this text did not give us the details. Now, in a few chapters... Peter is also going to be arrested and delivered from prison. It's going to give a lot more details. And we'll look at those details where details are given. But here they are locked in a prison. Again, by, by the terminology, it's a public prison. Means it, it's a prison that's well used. You know, So they've, they've worked out ways to keep men in jail overnight. It's, it's not an easy escape. And yet when they come the next day, these men are not there. Why? Because an angel of the Lord has set them free. The prison did not hold them. Now, why, was, why were they set free? And that really moves us to our last point. And I would call that the meaningful exhortation from the angel. 
Look what the angel says in chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people. I love the phrase here. All the words of this life. All the words of this life. What's, what's amazing to me is the world, even within Christianity, tend to think that spiritual things are all about the life to come. And, and aren't at times all that relevant to this life. No, the spiritual things are so relevant to this life. This life is meaningless, vain, and futile apart from Christ. Indeed, the scriptures remind us in John 14, 6 concerning Jesus that he is the way, the truth, and what? The life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He is. And when the scripture says, when he who is our life appears. Yeah. For those of us to live is Christ. And to die is gain. All the words of this life. Get rooted back to this simple reality. This life is all about Christ. And again, I want to just add this in for the sake of our special Greek fun today. It, it really would more liter literally be rendered all the words of this, the life. It's, it's distinguishing this, the life. So different. I love that because, again, when you begin to unpack the scriptures uh, on this point, um, in the Gospel of John, speaking of him as the life, it says um, he's the bread of life in chapter 6. In verse eight, John 8, he's the light of life. In uh, uh, Acts 3, he's the author and prince of life. So, the life. And he is the life. And later on, the early church is going to be called followers of the way. Yeah, he's the way. He's the truth. Remember, uh, to come, those who are of the truth will believe the truth. And Pilate says, What is the truth? And what's the truth? He's the truth. The foundation of everything that really ultimately matters is in Christ Jesus. Also, what I want us to note and not miss is this. Here these men come out. What has been happening? There has been a multitude of miracles that are happening at the hands of the apostles, right? Now, what can quickly become people's priority? And what was, to a degree, already in this passage being manifest as people's priority. They were coming from all the surrounding region and bringing what? Those who are sick and those with evil spirits. What was their priority? The healings. The flesh. These things were, were their priority. My, my mind also in this passage went back. And I, and I was remembering uh, where... Remember, Jesus had sent out the 72 in Luke chapter 10. And it says this, the one who hears you, hears me. 
And the one who rejects you rejects me and rejects the one who sent. I mean, this is as he was sending them out and he was going to grant them power to heal diseases. And when they went out, they would heal many diseases and they would cast out many evil spirits. But the instruction is, remember this, he who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. These other things are secondary. These men come back and what do they tell Jesus? They're rejoicing because even the spirits are... Subject to us. They're thrilled that they're casting out spirits. And sometimes the affliction that's brought on by those spirits. And, and their minds have shifted to this temporal reality. And Jesus says, why are, you, why are you rejoicing about that? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The spiritual realities are far more important. Than, with regard to the, the physical uh, Priorities, that doesn't make sense. Because Jesus even says, look, if one of your eyes cause you to sin, take that eye out. <laughs> if your hand causes you to sin, take that hand out. It's better to be maimed and lame into the kingdom than to have all of those things. But how quick does the, does the mentality shift? That where people may be getting all of those physical things, but if they aren't knowing Christ... What is the value of that? And so in the midst of this, it's almost like as there has been this abundance of healing and there almost seems to be this little shift that's taking place in the minds of the people. It's as if the spirit of God and the power of God providentially purposes a pause. I'm going to pull these men in overnight to prison. Shake a little extraordinary fear into them. I'm going to send an angel to remind them what their priority is. Go to the temple and what tell them all the words of this life maybe they had remember in the early uh, uh, by the time we get to Acts chapter 6 they had begun getting so caught up in the affairs of the church that they were leaving off the responsibility of of prayer and the ministry of the word so they didn't couldn't give up those priorities to wait on tables it may be also that this was a season where to a degree they were starting to drift into Attending more to the physical needs than what they were really most appointed to do. You will be my witnesses. People weren't coming necessarily to hear the message. Why were they coming? To be healed. And God just providentially works this pause and reminds them, ah, listen up. You know why I sent you? You know what's your priority? Get back in the temple and get my word going. All of my word. This life isn't about the abundance of things. This life isn't about physical health. This life is all about Christ. So in this passage, we saw five simple things. And I'll remind you of them as we close. The miraculous exploits of the apostles. And how that attested to their authority it declared the risen Savior and laid the foundation of the church in a way that we won't see again at that level. But the God who worked with a multitude of miracles through them, he continues to stretch out his hand. He continues to have mercy as he wills. Not, not that a person wields that power. Even as God used them as extraordinary instruments an instrument is merely an instrument. We see the miraculous exploit. Secondly, we see the miraculous expansion through addition. And that it's the Lord who adds to the church. So we just keep doing what God has called us to do. And we wait upon him.
to accomplish his perfect purposes. Thirdly, we see the malevolent incarceration by the adversaries. Enmity, persecution may come upon us. But like I want to point out, maybe all of the, that, that enmity that sometimes we think, this is bad, I w this shouldn't happen, this is a problem. It's purposed. And, and it looks like even in the context of this chapter, it may have a providential purpose to, to take them who are starting to, to, to get maybe overly focused on a tangent and get them back to the center of what they're to be all about, the declaration of the word. We see the miraculous exit through the angel that men could not explain, but that meaningful exhortation from the angel. That's to get back in there and declare all the words of this life. Let's pray. As always, Lord, we look to you because there is none like you. And oftentimes when we come to the end of the sermon, I just think how inadequate I am to express how important you are. How uh, I feel my words fail to convey sufficient gravity, sufficient grandeur, sufficient importance to who you are. But I would hope and pray and, and thus am resting on you that by your spirit, through your word, that you would do in the hearts of your people uh, what maybe my words cannot do. And that you would give them a, a clearer understanding of you. Give them great and glorious priorities. Lord, we thank you that you attested to your word that men would know that Jesus is risen from the dead. We also, by your grace in our life, can attest to the same. And we thank you and we pray that you would grant us grace upon grace, that we would understand that this, the life, ours, the way, and all that is the truth is bound up in Christ, our Savior. Lord, that he would be our Lord, that we would love and adore him and honor him and pursue him, seek him and serve him in increasing ways. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.